0: Uh, What a testament of God's faithfulness in these three testimonies. People of God, I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles, please, as we're going to be looking at Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to encourage you to follow along as we work through this very important chapter of Scripture. In Judaism, this chapter is called the Shema, which comes from verse 4, when God says, Hear, O Israel, and then he gives us his command. So this passage according to the Jews, is perhaps the quintessential passage that helps us know who God is. Not just to know about God, but to truly know God. And so, uh, to kind of set the stage for where we're going today, I want to share with you something that you already know. And that is this. Everyone you've ever known, everyone you know, and everyone you will ever know, including yourself, has a worldview. That is to say, they have a particular lens with which they see the world and how it works. And uh, in the Christian narrative, we believe that there are four unique aspects, four layers to our story. We put it this way. We believe in the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Those four things help outline our faith story as Christians. And when looking at this, I realized that Hebrews chapter 6 actually begin to answer each of those four questions. And within those four narratives come, perhaps, the four most difficult questions that each and every one of us ask whether we're Christian or not, whether we're theists or atheists, regardless of our background or our religious beliefs or our experiences, every single one of us asks these four questions. And I put them in your note sheet. I put them up here as well. These four questions. Where did we come from? That's the creation question, right? Uh, What's wrong with the world? That's the fall question. How can we fix it? Fix in quotations, that's the redemption question, and what is my purpose? That being the restoration question. I want to encourage you, find one book or one movie or one newspaper article or one TV show that doesn't address or begin to address at least one of those four questions. Every single one of us, we grapple with these four questions. In many ways, they're the parent questions to all the other questions that we ask as well. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 6 helps begin to unveil the answer to each of these four questions. So, let's start with the first one. The first question being, where did I come from? And the answer, according to Scripture, is this. From God, the creator of everyone and everything. That's Deuteronomy chapter 4. So, if your Bibles are open, take a look at that first verse. It says this. Hear, O Israel, Shema." The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Circle that, highlight it, underline it, that word one. What is God saying here? What does it mean? Well, the dominant belief during that day was that there were many gods, thousands, even a multitude of gods and goddesses that we would worship. Think about where Israel came from in Egypt. Multiple gods that they worshipped. And then God comes along and he says, no, There is only one God, and I am the true God, and there is no other. You did not create me, I created you, and I am the creator of everyone and everything. And in that culture back then, and both in our culture today, we look at this and we say, How narrow minded, how exclusive. How can you possibly say that there is only one truth and one way and one God and and all other ways are untrue? How can you possibly say that? It begins to ruffle our feathers when when we have these kind of claims. But consider something for a moment. As Christians, we don't lay claim to the fact that there's one God or one way or one truth on the basis of our own moral authority, do we? No, we, we look at Scripture and we say that this is God's autobiography of himself. This is his self-disclosure of who he is, which he gives to his people to outline who he is. So we don't create this out of abstraction. We say, this is what scripture says, and we will remain faithful to it. And yet, this kind of response, I think, begs a further explanation for two different groups of people. First, those who don't believe in God. And second, for those who would call themselves spiritual, but don't ascribe to the God of the Bible. And so, I want to just very briefly um, address those here. So, on the one hand, you might say, Justin, uh, I'm not religious at all. So, it's not that I'm frustrated with Christianity by itself. I'm frustrated with all religions who lay claim to the fact that there's one God, or there's one way, or there's one truth, or there's one moral authority, and all other ways are false— How exclusive? How can you possibly say those things? And and here's what I would say to you, with all due respect, if you don't believe that there is a creator of the universe and that we were a, a cosmic accident, some conglomeration of molecules that came together and over the course of trillions of years we finally just came to be and have a sense of consciousness, then I would ask you that on what basis would you tell me what is true from what is untrue? What is real from what's fake? What's moral from what's immoral? What's ethical from what's unethical? I think of what the Apostle Paul says. He says, if Jesus Christ were not raised, then let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we're going to die anyway. What's he saying? He's saying that if there is no God and if he didn't do the things that he did, then why does it matter? Like you might as well right now as you're watching on your computer screen or on your TV, just turn it off. Go and enjoy your life. Do whatever you want to do because none of it matters anyway. You just have streams of consciousness in your brain. You're here today, you're gone tomorrow, none of it matters. But if he is real, then it makes all the difference in the world. To the second group of people, those who would say, I'm religious, but I don't necessarily believe in the God of the Bible, then then I would dare say that the God that you are following, perhaps, looks a whole lot like you. They love what you love. This God hates what you hate thinks the way you think, is disturbed by the things that you're disturbed with, you and, and this God are like two peas in a pod. And what I would say to you is, with all due respect, the God that you have created from your own imagination is not a God to be worshipped. And there may come a time in your life in which you feel utterly worthless And what you need in that moment is an objective God who can tell you, no, you are worthy, you are valuable to me. But if it's simply a God that you've created, then how, on on what possible basis can can that God that you've created tell you that? Or imagine if sometime down the road you feel incredible shame. In what way can this God come into your life and say, no, I have taken away your shame on account of the things that I've done for you. I have redeemed you. I have chosen to love you. How can the God that you've created tell you those things? And so with all due respect, the God that your heart desperately needs is not a God that you have created. It is a God who is, whether you believe it in or not. Who you benefit from, whether you believe it or not. Like the oxygen that you breathe in and out. He is. You think of what uh, Moses, the encounter that he had in the book of Exodus, when he says to God, what shall I call you? And God says, call me, I am. I have no other name but this, I am. And it's on that basis that we as Christians say, God is the creator of the world. And on that basis, the deepest need of our heart is for a God that we didn't invent A God that we discovered through Scripture, through His Word, a God that we know is real whether we believe in it or not. And so that's the answer to the first question. But here's the second question What went wrong with the world? And the answer, according to Scripture, is this sin entered the world. We believe that on account of our sin nature, the entire world and everything in it is tainted with sin. There's brokenness and decay in our world. And we look around, all around it, even before the pandemic, and we say there's something wrong with the world. This is not the way it's supposed to be. We see suffering and dying and death and pandemics and evil and suffering and all these things. and We say there's something wrong here. And it's because of our sin nature. Do you remember the example that that I gave you last week? I I shared with you that uh, it's just so striking to me that little children, even little children who can't talk, are just such capable liars, right? It's not as though when your child comes out of the womb, you have a little pep talk with them, and you say, listen, my child, if ever you want to lie, here's how you do it. No, they just know how to do it. Two things they can do. Number one, they know how to lie. And number two, they know that it's wrong. They feel incredible shame in so doing. And once again, the Apostle Paul, he tells us that that the law is written upon our hearts, meaning it's self-evident in the world. These things are things that we ultimately know. You know, um, we had an instance like this in our house just this past week. I got a little picture here for you. This is my son Noah. As you can see, there's uh, some chalk over here, and there's chalk residue all over his hands and on his pants, and right here you see that he's holding a piece of chalk. And Julie just so happened to get this picture at the perfect time. Do you see this? This is the face of shame right here. And Julie asked him this question. She said, Noah, did you do this? And his response was this, Kate did it. (laughs) Kate did it. Kate's in the back seat, just a little bit farther back here. Kate did it, was his response. And Julie says, But Noah, you have the chalk in your hand, and it's right next to your seat. Kate did it. And he holds to that to this day, mind you. And so here's what we see. Even though this is a a humorous story, we all know that we are perfectly capable of doing far more gratuitous things. We are capable of sin. And so the natural drift of every single human heart is not toward its creator. It's away from its creator. That's the river current, always downstream, never upstream. We're always moving away from God. Now listen to me. It's not that we're good people who sometimes do bad things. It's that we're broken and sinful people who only by God's grace can do anything good at all. That's the big difference between the way Christians view the world and the way the world views the world. Because the world says, yeah, sure, we make mistakes from time to time, but if only we can legislate it, if only we can get the bad people out of the picture, if only we can make this series of changes, then the world will be better. And we say, no, absolutely not. On account of our sin nature, the traitor within, this will always be the case. We will always have sin in our life. That's the bent of the human soul. We're always bent toward rebellion. We're always running toward self-righteousness. We're always filled with such narcissism that the whole world revolves around me, not you, me. That's the bent of our own hearts. And so we look at all of that and and we see that Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5 Begins to outline this for us. Take a look in your Bible. Verse 5 says this Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And so, this is the second thing that the Shema, the hero Israel, the command of God, reveals to us is the summary of the law. Right? So we know that the, the first half of the law is to love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second half is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this right here is the, the summation, the summary of God's law, which we looked at last week. Now here's the question that I want to ask you. Have you ever wondered to yourself, why was the law not given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? Why, wasn't, why didn't God give it there? Because it was self-evident because it wasn't required because it wasn't needed because adam and eve at the end of every single day in the cool of the day would walk with their lord and with their god and so i want you to see here that within these passages there's ultimately two tests if you will that god reveals as to whether or not you are loving god with your whole heart and loving your neighbor as yourself so look at verses 6 and 7. verse 6 says this these commands that i give you today are to be upon where? Your hearts. They need to be upon your heart. Then it goes, verse 7, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. And at this point, we say, okay, yeah, I I get that, right? I need to talk about it with my kids. I need to talk about it at home. I need to uh, read my Bible when I wake up. I need to talk to God before I lay down. Every element of my personal life needs to be devoted to God. We say, I get that. But then it continues this way. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. What does that mean? What is God saying? Well, first of all, for the commandment for these things to be upon our hearts means that you will act this way toward God throughout your entire life. You won't just love God on the weekends, but you'll love him on weekdays. You won't just love God in your personal life, but you will in your public life. You won't just love God with some friends, like your Christian friends, but you will with all of your friends, regardless of what they might think of you on account of you expressing your faith manifestly in those ways. Every single aspect of your life will be devoted to the Lord your God. Now, now here's what this means. When we say, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates, what does that mean? It reminds me of a quote from uh, Elizabeth Elliot's father, And he was a self-professing, Deuteronomy chapter 6 kind of Christian. And when uh, he was looking at this passage, he came to a conclusion. You know, for you and I, there's many Christians who have uh, biblical quotes inside their house, right? Julie and I have this. And uh, some common ones are, I I wrote some down. God bless this home, right? You might have it on uh, a piece of wood or painted on your wall or something like that, right? Or, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, or passages like that. And those are all really great things. And many of us as Christians have those things in our home. But here's what Elizabeth Elliot's father chose to do. When he saw this, he said the door frame is not something that's inside the house. It's something that's outside the house. And so right next to his doorbell, as everyone would walk into his house, here he would have this quote, Christ is the head of this home the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. Because he wanted to adhere to the Deuteronomy chapter 6 principle. And then he says, write them on your gates, which means you are to love God in your societal life as well. If you want a really helpful um, guide to what this is talking about, I want to encourage you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. It's just a little bit ahead there. Take a look at it. Now, here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10. It says, Hear, O Israel, that's Shema, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to love and serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul? So that's exactly the same as Deuteronomy chapter 6. But this time, he gives a description of what that looks like. He says, For the Lord shows no partiality and he accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant and the alien, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are immigrants and aliens, for you yourselves were once aliens in Egypt. So what is God saying? He's saying it's not enough just to bring the love of God into your house. It's not enough just to bring the love of God into your private house or personal, or family life, as important as that is. It's not enough to love God privately. It has to affect your social conscience as well. As you walk out your door and you enter into society, it has to affect that element of your life as well. So, for instance, God is saying, I don't want the slightest whiff of racism to be in the community of those who love me. And if there is, if you show partiality, if you show prejudice, if you discriminate on the basis of nation or race or the color of skin or anything else, then here's what you're saying. You have ultimately forgotten who and whose you are. You have forgotten your identity in the God that you serve. That's the point. If you're showing partiality, it means you actually haven't yet experienced my grace. The love that only comes from the Father above. You don't know still that you are a sinner who is saved by sheer grace. And there's plenty other instances that that God can give us that's equally radical to this one. And so last week, we learned what the law of God does, didn't we? When you look around at the world, you ask yourself, has racism ceased? Are the naked clothed? Are the hungry fed? Are there no longer issues within our society? Of course there are. Why? Because our sin nature continues to exist. What does the law do? I put it this way last week. The law condemns us. Even though the law in one sense helps us understand who God is and who we are in relationship to him, in a much deeper and more profound sense, the law reveals that we can never honor and submit to the law perfectly. And so it condemns us. And so that leads to our third question. How do we fix it? How do we fix the problem of the world? And according to Deuteronomy, the answer is this. To trust in God unconditionally. To trust God unconditionally. Look at verse 16. It says this. Do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God in the stipulations and the decrees that he has given you do not put the lord your god to the test now that hebrew word test is the word naka which is a fascinating word and perhaps the best way to describe what it is is uh, to remind you of a term that we often use in our legal system which is this innocent until proven guilty have you heard that before This is the the innocence clause that in pretty much every developed nation in the world, it is the law of the land. It is built within our legal system. That is to say, we need to learn their guilt. We need to prove their guilt. And otherwise, if we can't, they're innocent. Innocent until proven guilty. Well, what we see is that this little Hebrew word, naka, is the opposite. One way you could describe it is like this. Guilty until proven innocent. That's what it means to test God. So to test the Lord is basically to say, I will follow you, and I will love you, and I will trust you only as long as my life goes the way I want it to. Only as long as you prove your utility to me, your commitment to me. My desires and the longings of my heart, my health, wealth, and happiness, if you give all those things to me, then I will put my trust in you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. But you must prove your worthiness to me. That's what it means to put the Lord your God to the test. And in some sense, every single one of us have done this. If you have a sin nature, the traitor within, then you've done this. Your heart has done this. You have been a naka Christian. And on account of that, we still far further and further away from God. But here's why this never works. Because he's God, and you're not. He's God, and I'm not. Now, I don't want to oversimplify this, because this was the question that I wrestled with when I was a kid. The question of why. Many of you know my story. You know that my parents separated when I was very young. That I spent much of my childhood in women's shelters. I lived in more houses by my 18th birthday than I was years old. Um, Many of my siblings lived apart from one another. There was a lot of abuse and substance abuse within my house. And on account of that, In my childhood and in my adolescence and in my teenage years, I often felt lonely and alone and wondering out loud, why? Why, God, would you allow these things to happen? Why do I feel so alone? Have you been there? Have you been in that place when you have had those types of experiences? See, I'm confident, even as I look through this computer screen, That many of the people, perhaps even you, that I'm talking to right now are personally experiencing the same sort of feelings that I have had. And perhaps even to a far greater degree, a far more gratuitous degree than I've ever experienced myself, you are thinking to yourself, God, why would you allow these things to happen? And maybe, just maybe, you're still in it right now. And so perhaps for you, it's not enough to say, he's God and I'm not. I need more, Justin. I need more than just that very simple answer. And so, I want to give you a testimony of someone who has really helped shape my perspective on this. And I've mentioned her name already. Elizabeth Elliot. And she gives a story that goes a little bit like this. She visited some friends up in northern Wales who were sheep farmers. And when she went there, it was the time of year in which the farmer would take his entire herd of sheep and he would bring them to an an enormous vat of antiseptic. If you know what that is, you know that that's not the kind of thing that you want to take a bath in. And so he would take every single sheep and it's not like they would just like walk through it. It needed to be high enough that he could literally submerge them head and all underneath a 100% baptism of every single sheep. And you might ask yourself, why would a shepherd do that? Well, native to that area, there were tons of insects and parasites that they learned over the years. If they weren't submerged in a vat of antiseptic, then they would ultimately get get eaten alive and die. And so this was the gracious thing to do to ensure that these helpless sheep could stay alive. Um, that they would kind of be pre-medicated to all of these insects and parasites but here's the thing that we all know the sheep had no clue and so here's what she writes she says this one by one john that being the shepherd seized the animals they would struggle to climb out the side and mac the sheepdog would snarl and snap at their faces and force them back under when they tried to climb up the ramp in a panicky way at the far end john the farmer would catch them spin them around forced them under again, holding their ears, eyes, and nose submerged for a few seconds. And she later explains the reason she did that is because the face was the part of the entire animal that had to be submerged the most, because that's the only part that didn't have fur all around it. So the face, for sure, needed to be submerged at least for a few seconds. And as their lord and master was pushing their head under, drowning them, at least as far as as they could tell, their panicky little eyes would look up over the edge of the vat, and it was easy to see what they were thinking. What is God doing? She says, I've had some experiences in my life which have made me feel very sympathetic to those poor sheep. There are times I couldn't figure out any reason for the treatment I was getting from my great shepherd whom I trusted. And like these sheep, I didn't have a hint of an explanation. And by the way, if you don't know who Elizabeth Elliot is, she was part of a very young family with two young children. She was married to a missionary who was brutally murdered by the very people he intended to reach for Jesus. Not long later, she remarried, and her second husband was diagnosed with a very rare form of cancer, and almost overnight, he died as well. And so by her mid-40s, she was twice widowed, crying out why, without a hint of an explanation. Have you been in that place? Have you asked those types of questions? And when you look at the story, you might say, well, the shepherd had to do what he did with the sheep, right? You know, otherwise the parasites, the insects, they would have eaten the sheep alive. And so he did, he did the good thing, right? It pans out. It's obvious. It's logical. We now understand. Why can't God just kind of give us the answer?" Well, at least for the sheep, they had no clue, right? Their options were either to die or to put their trust unconditionally in this shepherd. That was their only options. And so, with all due respect to you, I'm sure you're a very intelligent person. The only difference between a shepherd and his sheep and between God and you is that there's a far greater gap of intelligence between God and you than between the shepherd and his sheep. That's the only difference. So if the shepherd need to unconditionally put their trust in their or if a sheep needs to do that to the shepherd, then you and I must do this toward the great and good shepherd. That's why we have no other option. Because he is God, and I am not. Now listen, if there's no God, then then none of this matters. None of it matters. But if God does exist, then we have to know we have no other option but to put our trust in him unconditionally. But then you might say, Justin, how can I possibly put my trust unconditionally in a God that I cannot see? I mean, that sounds like a whole lot of give and a whole little take. How can I do that? And now here's what I love about Scripture. It beats us to the punch and it answers the same question. Look down to verse 20. Verse 20 says this, In the future, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, the decrees, and the laws the Lord our God has commanded? Do you know what the son is asking? In other words, he's saying, Dad, I see you obeying God in every single aspect of your life. I see you serving him unconditionally. I see you putting his law on the door frames of your house. But why should I? Why should I put my trust in a God I can't see? That might be good enough for you, Dad. That might be good enough for you to say, I'm going to put my trust in God and and my faith beyond what my eyes can see, but I need more. I need to to know more than that, Dad. Dad. And the answer that we might be tempted to give as parents is to say, well, the reason we need to do this is because God said so. Or because I tell you so. Or because your mother tells you so. And and that's kind of our answer. And, And that might be sufficient up until, at such time, they become 18. And they leave your house. And they say, I need something more. But we see here that God gives a very different answer. A very different explanation. Look at verse 21. God says this. Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders, both great and terrible, on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised on oath to our ancestors. (laughs) Look, the Father doesn't give a list of commands. He gives the gospel as far as they knew at that time. That's what he's giving. He's giving the Exodus story, the story of deliverance out of Egypt and into the land of promise. Now, let me ask you a question. How did Israel get to the land of promise? The ten plagues, right? And which of the ten plagues broke Pharaoh's back? The tenth plague. What happened? The angel of death came down. And killed the firstborn son of every single household. But not a single Israelite died. Why? How? Because the people of Israel took the blood of the lamb and they put it where? Where did they put it? On the door frames of their houses. Inside or outside? Outside of their houses. (laughs) Now get the symbolism here. It is so beautiful to behold. In verse 9, we already read this. Write them, that being the law, on the door frames of your houses. So what is God communicating here? What God is saying is before the law goes on the doorpost, the blood of the lamb goes on the doorposts. That's what goes there first. The gospel always goes out before. And so the message, according to Deuteronomy chapter 6, isn't just obey my law because I said so. Because I'm telling you to. Because I'm God and because you're not. The message of the Father is this. God has delivered us through the blood of the Lamb on the doorposts. And because I serve a God like that, I'm going to put the law of the Lamb on the doorposts. That's why, as Christians, we believe the law is God's guide to grateful living. That's what we call it. We call it our response Not our dictate, not our mandate, our guide to grateful living, knowing that God has already paid the price. The law no longer condemns us, says the Apostle Paul. We have now been set free on account of what Jesus has done for us. And already, right here, before Jesus, Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's already here. Why do we obey the law? Because of the blood of the Lamb. That's why we obey the law. So here's the point. It's not enough to just tell your heart, I need to trust in him. I need to obey because because he's God and, and I'm just a dumb sheep. That's not enough for your heart. But what if I told you the great and good shepherd became a helpless sheep? What if I told you he became helpless and hopeless and he was crushed for you and for me? And so this father, sitting down his son, he paints a picture. He gives him a vision of the God that we serve. He doesn't just say, obey me. He came down from heaven down to earth. He took on flesh. He became helpless. He went toward the cross. And there his blood was poured out on the doorposts, on the wood, so that we could be set free. Do you remember Elizabeth Elliot? There's one aspect to her story that I didn't tell you because I wanted to keep it until now. This is how her story ends. She says this, There will be no intellectual satisfaction on this side of heaven to that age-old question, why? There won't be. But although I have not found an intellectual satisfaction, I have found peace. And the answer I say to you is not an explanation But a person, Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God, it is he who was the word before the foundation of the world, suffering as a lamb who was slain. And so to the child who asked the question, Dad, how can I trust him? The only appropriate response of a parent is to say, because he has done all of that and more for you and for me. And so that leads to our last question. What's my purpose? What's your purpose? And the answer is this, to tell God's story. To tell God's story. Not to make all of this about Elizabeth Elliot, but there's one more part of her story that I find so fascinating that perfectly encapsulates this point. Do you remember how her first husband was brutally murdered well a few years later she went and found those men she forgave them she introduced her children to them she lived with them for 16 years and she brought them to a faith-saving relationship with jesus that's how that story ended and we once again had a perfect example of this When Sarah and Ethan and Alicia shared their faith story, their testimonies with us as well. Highlighting what God has done in their life in ways that they didn't deserve. See, that's the reason why it's so important for us to tell our story. That's the reason why even during the season of Lent, we are encouraging you to pray for the lost. That's the reason why Miss Elena works so hard to put together these packages for you as parents to resource you to train and to equip your children. It's the reason why we do what we do. So that we can tell God's story. Because the answer I say to you to the four questions that we reviewed today is not an explanation. It's a person. Jesus Christ Our Lord, the risen Lamb who was slain for you and for me. And so I say to you if you have been affected by the gospel, you have one mandate left tell God's story. With gratitude in your heart, tell God's story.